The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, church. Welcome to Heritage Christian Fellowship. My name is Paul Stevens. I'm one of your pastors. Listen, sincerely, uh, right now in this moment, can we pause for a second or two? I stood up here with some elders and some pastors in the last two weeks. I've been working over at the Hub with incredible people, incredible, faithful saints, your pastors, your staff, your elders, your key volunteers who have faithfully and selflessly carried this church for the last year. Would you give them a hand? I'm honored to serve on this staff. I'm honored to be a part of this team. I'm honored to be one of the pastors at Heritage Christian Fellowship. And maybe you don't know this, maybe you do. It's been a long season for you here at Heritage. I want to just share with you what I know to be true. I knew this to be true before I moved here, and I know this to be true today. This is an incredible church filled with incredible people who want to see Christ exalted, who are selfless and generous and giving. God is doing amazing things in this church. Our convictions are in the right place. I believe God is going to use Heritage Christian Fellowship not to exalt the brand Heritage Christian Fellowship, not to exalt the name of a pastor or a staff member. I believe God is going to use this church to exalt the name of Christ and to preach the gospel to this valley for His glory. Amen? Amen. We're entering into a new season today as a church, a new beginning, if you will. And we're stepping into the book of Genesis. We're calling this series The Beginning. I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. If you're having a hard time finding that, it's probably on page 1. For the next seven months, we are going to journey through the first 11 chapters of Genesis together. Today, I want to begin by simply looking at the very first verse of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1. Before I read this text, I want to remind you This is the living Word of God. God in His infinite wisdom has preserved these very words, these words of life for us today. So as we open this text, let's open it with reverence and with a desire to see Christ exalted and God glorified. Let's let this be an act of worship as we read the very words of God. Amen? In the beginning, God created heavens and earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that today, God, as we gather in this place as as men and women desiring to worship you with our lives, desiring to know you, God, would you, would you stir in our hearts and minds? Would you open our eyes, God? Would you, would you soften our hearts, God? Would you bring conviction? Would you draw us to a place where we surrender our lives over to you? God, meet us in this place. Bring obedience. God, I pray that, that today we wouldn't worry about a great sermon, but that this sermon would reveal how great of a God you are. We love you. Meet us in this place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've had a tendency in my life to make a big deal out of small things. I wish that wasn't the case, but it's true. And often when I'm making a big deal out of a small thing, I'm not realizing in the moment that it's a small thing 
But once you introduce time and, and perspective and wisdom, I've realized that I, in fact, was making a big deal out of a small thing. Case in point, watching my children compete in athletics. It's ridiculous how I've allowed the performance of my children or the success of their team to have a bearing on the joy of my soul. Making a small thing a big thing. I've also allowed temporary difficulties to come into my life and to rob me of joy. I've made the small things of temporary difficulty into a big thing that has challenged me. My family and I just made a big move. We moved 2,400 miles across the country. And I'm going to be honest with you, it's created some challenges. It's not easy to move a family across the country. It's kicked up some fears inside of me, some insecurities, and if I'm not careful, I might allow the challenges of this move, of a new job, of a new city to become far too big a deal in my life. Because I've realized in my life that when I make something small too big of a deal, what I do is it takes my attention away from the one who deserves it. I no longer look to this God who we read of in the first page of Scripture. Perhaps you've had a tendency also of making a big deal out of small things. Now listen, I don't want to make uh, light of this. Because often the things that we make big deals in our life are connected to, su- to, to pain and to struggle and to suffering in our lives. As I think about us as human beings, I've noticed that we, we tend to make a big deal out of small things in two primary ways. One, we either elevate something small to Lord in our life, or we elevate or allow something small to Lord over our life. Perhaps like me, you have elevated a small thing, a temporal thing, to the level of Lord in your life. Something that draws your devotion, something that occupies your time, something that becomes the center of your worship, though you might not use those words, a relationship, a particular conviction, a possession, an ambition. The Bible would call that idol worship. Perhaps you've allowed a small thing, a temporal thing, to rise up and Lord over your life stealing your joy, robbing you of hope, replacing your worship, a discomfort, a disappointment, a difficulty, a destruction. The Bible would encourage us to fear not, to find our refuge and our hope in the one who has overcome these things. The things that we can elevate to Lord in our life and the things that we can then allow to Lord over our life are countless. My guess is if we were to grab coffee this week and I was to talk to you about my life and you were to talk to me about your life, my guess is we would both talk about things that we've made good things that we've allowed to become ultimate things in our life. My guess is that we would talk about seasons in our life where there was a darkness that we allowed to drown out the light and the hope of the gospel. And as I stand here today, I'm mindful of at least two dangers, two temptations that may be facing this church in this moment. I'm concerned that there may be a temptation to elevate a new lead pastor to a dangerous position in which he does not belong. There's only one Lord. There's only one Messiah. And Paul Stevens is not his name. It does not serve me to place me on a pedestal. It does not honor God. I'm a flawed man. Some would say I'm a deeply flawed man. I wholly am dependent upon the grace of God. I need this body. Like Jeremy said, I need this body to love me and rebuke me and correct me and sanctify me. The honor honor today is not for, for, for Heritage Christian Fellowship to have me. The honor today is me to be had by this church. That's the honor. Second concern I have is there may be a temptation to allow the the tumultuous times we're in. There may be a temptation to allow the challenges and the losses we have faced as a church to lord over us. Now, I have tremendous sensitivity to the losses this church has experienced 
the challenges that we have been through, but I want to lovingly and humbly remind you that nothing is to lord over us except God himself. Not death, not grief, not disappointment, not fear, not illness. The thundering words of Genesis 1-1 echo in this room today. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, before there was Christian fellowship, before there was a new lead pastor, before there was a newly elected president, God. In the beginning, before there was a global pandemic, before there were devastating fires, before there was church hurt, God. In the beginning, God. I think of the first people to hear these words. I think of those wilderness wandering Israelites. Confused, searching, lost, afraid, unsure, maybe you can identify. Wondering about their future, wandering in a wasteland, waiting for answers, worn out and tired. And then through his prophet Moses, God speaks these words, these, these two Hebrew words, these four English words, this simple sentence with profound implications. In the beginning, God. With desperate ears, that original audience would have heard these words. In the beginning, before the famine that drove their people to Egypt, before the 400 years that broke their ancestors' backs, before the miraculous deliverance in Exodus, before any of it, before the giants in Canaan, before the 40 years of wandering in the desert, God. In the beginning, God. He's the God of creation. He's the God of the past, the present, and the future. He spoke those words. Moses wrote them down. Now Moses has been considered the author of Genesis forever. This has been the prevailing view of Jews and Christians for thousands of years since before the time of Christ. Only within the last 200 years has some scholarship risen up to question the authorship of Moses, of Genesis, but I do not believe those arguments hold water. Moses is the author of the book of Genesis, just like he's the author of the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Genesis serves not only as the first book of the Bible, it also serves as the introduction of the Pentateuch, this unit of books, the first five books of the Old Testament. And though Moses writes these words, words that speak of the origins, the beginnings of time and space, words that speak of creation, of man, of sin, of the fall, of the flood, of the patriarchs, of Egypt, Moses writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It isn't simply a perspective of Moses on ancient history. Genesis isn't a book of science. It's not a how-to manual. These are the very words of God. This is Scripture. Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for correction, for training in righteousness. And though God initially inspired Moses to write these words for the wilderness-wandering Israelites some 1,400 years or so before Jesus, he also inspired Moses to pen these words, not just for them then, but for us today. This is God's very word to us today in this place, in the beginning. God. Keep in mind that Moses wasn't a first-hand witness to creation. Untold time would have separated Moses from God's creating work. Centuries would have separated Moses from the, 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 the words he writes about the patriarchs or the fathers of, of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses penned these words. So these words that we read today are infinitely true. They are the inspired, inerrant, holy words of God. And through Moses, God gives us today an accurate account of the origins of the cosmos, of the earth, of life, 
the origins of humankind, of marriage, of sin, of death, of the patriarchs, of God's overarching plan of redemption. Our very understanding of who God is, of man, of creation, of sin and salvation, all of it has its roots or finds its foundation in the book of Genesis. And this is what we're going to unpack. This is what we're going to study over the next seven months. It's not hard to imagine how encouraging these words would have been for the Israelites over the centuries. I think of the the Israelites that were in in exile during the time of Moses. I, I think of the people of God gathering in Jerusalem for the holy holidays when these words would have been read as an encouragement to them. I think of the Israelites that were in Exodus at the hands of the Babylonians. It's not hard to imagine how these words would have spoken to them as they were asking some of the life's biggest questions. Who is God? Does God even care? Is God powerful enough to do anything about the situation I find myself in now? And to those Israelites would have asked these questions, Genesis gives us a profound answer. Who is God? Well, he's the God of creation. And the God of creation is also the God of the patriarchs, the ancestors of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's also the God of the covenant. Does he care? Yes, he cares. That's why he delivered his people. That's why he promised them a land. That's why he he preserved and protected and provided for them. Is he powerful enough to do anything about their situation? Yes. This is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, all-powerful God. And the God who spoke the cosmos into existence is working on behalf of his people. In the beginning, God. Perhaps you've asked some of those questions as well. I'd like to say that I've only asked those big questions about God when I was seeking him before my conversion. But the truth is, if I'm honest with you today, I've asked big questions of God in my very recent history. As I've walked with Jesus, I've discovered that the landscape gets new around each bend, and I sometimes find myself, often in seasons of pain, asking really big questions about God. God, who are you? God, do you care? God, can you help? I still ask those questions. When I first started walking with God many years ago, I had a very transactional understanding of God, a a cause and effect understanding of God. I believed that if I did A and B, that God would do C and D. And I operated on that behalf. God, I'm doing my gig for you. You're going to do your thing for me. That's how it's going to work. And so I put my hand to the work of ministry. And, but you know what? With time, I began to encounter disappointment and things weren't working out how I thought they were going to work out. And I was wondering about that. And I began to struggle a little bit with God. And I realized that maybe the way I thought of God was too simplistic. Maybe I had put him in a box. And the longer I began to walk with God and and difficulty was entered into my life and loss was entered into my life and pain and struggle and grief entered into my life, I found that God was not so much interested in my happiness. God wasn't so concerned about my comfort. Instead of happiness, he was worried about my holiness. And instead of my comfort, he wanted to conform me to the image of his son Jesus. It's painful. The chisel of God sanctifying us, conforming us into his image is not easy. It's painful. He's so much bigger than a transactional God. I've discovered, and I know that I still have much to discover in the years ahead, that when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and I cannot see where my next foot is going to fall, then and only then do I have to trust God guiding me with his staff. Psalm 23, 4 tells us that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because your staff and your rod, they comfort me. 
A shepherd guides his sheep with a staff. And when you're walking through the darkest seasons of life and you don't know where your next foot's going to fall, it's the very staff of God. It's the presence of God. It's you depending on him where he guides your step. And when untold threats emerge from the darkness, the snarling attacks of the prowling lion, it is his club that protects you. And it's only through these difficult seasons when we ask these questions of God, God, who are you? God, do you care? God, can you help? That we finally experience the intimacy with God that we were never going to experience if we lived in the realm of a transactional God. In the beginning, God... It's no accident that God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible. In fact, in the first 35 verses of Genesis, stretching into chapter 2, we read the name of God 35 times. It's the generic name for God. It's Elohim. It's this idea that Moses is talking about how this is this personal God who is a creator God. He's this transcendent creator God. And then in the 35th time we see the name of God mentioned, chapter 2, verse 4, it's no longer just Elohim. It's the Lord God. The author identifies Elohim as Yahweh. This is the personal name for God. The use of Yahweh underlines the personal nature of this creator God we read about in the pages of Genesis. The author wants us to know that this this isn't some generic God who's speaking things into be. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God of the covenants. This creator God is Yahweh. This is the God who made a covenant with Abraham. This is the God who delivered Israel. This is the God, the infinite, eternally existing, sovereign, creator God. He is the God of the nations. He is the God who sent his son Jesus to overcome sin and death, to rise as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And one day, and one day, every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's rather an insignificant thing who sits on earthly thrones or in oval offices. Our God is Lord over all of it. How we understand the words of Genesis 1-1 and how we respond to these words, it impacts everything. It informs everything. It changes everything. It aligns everything. Because if in the beginning there's anything else other than God, that creates a domino effect that has far-reaching implications in our life. If in the beginning there was chance, if in the beginning there was some random bang, if in the beginning it was just a puddle of primordial soup, if in the beginning there was disorder and chaos, or if in the beginning there's just a giant question mark, well then we'll be tempted to create a God of our own making. And that God will serve us in our worldview, not the other way around. However, if in the beginning, God... If that truth comes before and informs all other things, well, then it rightly aligns everything else in our lives. But it all starts with embracing this fundamental, foundational, and eternal truth that we read on the very first sentence of the very first page of Scripture. In the beginning, God. If you can't embrace these first four words, you can't embrace the 783,000 words of Scripture that follow. This verse forms the foundation for all that is to follow in Genesis, in the Pentateuch, in the Old Testament, in all of Scripture. These words inform everything that follows in human history and in your life and in my life. Consider verse 1 through the lens of all of Scripture. 
In the beginning, God, Genesis 1-1, what does the last page, the last chapter of Scripture speak about? Let's go to Revelation 22, verse 13. We look at the bookends of Scripture, the beginning and the end. How can the bookends of Scripture, if we widen our lens as we look at Genesis 1-1 today from the bird's eye view of all of Scripture, what do we see? In the beginning, God, Revelation 22-13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In order to rightly understand these first words of the Bible, let's draw back, let's widen our lens. As we consider Genesis 1-1 in light of Revelation 22-13, what do we see? Well, we see in the beginning, God, and we see in the end, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and in the end, in Christ, God ushers in a new heavens and a new earth, one in which Jesus wipes every tear and makes all things new. Everything lost will be restored. I think of the overarching story of Scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Here we see the bookends of creation and restoration. If we tighten our focus and we look through the lens of the Old Testament at our text today, what do we see? Well, we see in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. If we go to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, this minor prophet... We see that the ultimate remedy for sin is not found in people's own self-righteousness, but in the righteousness that comes from another, the Lord of hosts. We see God working out his plan of redemption, pointing us to Jesus, the only truly righteous one. What about if we tighten our lens just to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament? Genesis 1-1 tells us that in the beginning, God, if we go to Deuteronomy 34, the last chapter of Deuteronomy, we see God speaking to Moses as Moses looks over the promised land, and God says to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. We see God continuing the work that he'd begun in Genesis. We see him establishing covenant with his people and fulfilling his promises, pointing us to the hope we find in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. If we tighten our focus and we look at our text today just through the lens of the book of Genesis, what do we see? Well, we see in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we see at the end of chapter 1 that God says, uh, the Bible says that God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And then at the end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, after the fall, Adam and Eve have fallen, sin has entered, and, and, and death has entered the human race, and destruction has spread, and we've just seen all this dysfunction, and then God chooses a covenant people through Abraham, and then we see through the line of, of, of Abraham just tons of dysfunction and backstabbing and, and, and murder and deception, and we see it all culminate in the last part of Genesis chapter 50. Here's Jacob. He'd been sold into slavery by his brothers, betrayed. They lied about his death to Jacob, And here his brothers are in the midst of famine, on the verge of death, before their brother. He's there to to do something beautiful in the midst of all this ugliness. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Isn't that crazy? God looked at creation before sin and it was very good. And we see the corruption of sin rip things apart. And then we see here at the end of Genesis, what you meant for evil against me, God meant for good. God is still at work. And as we hear the words of Joseph to his brothers, it reminds us of the ministry and the work of Christ. 
who as an atoning sacrifice endured the cross on your behalf and on my behalf, who absorbed wrath, who overcame evil, who defeated sin and death, that the world might be saved. Even if we just look at the text today through the lens of the 11 chapters we're going to preach over the next seven months, we see that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then we, we see the fall of humankind when Adam and Eve partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then as God is speaking a curse over Satan, he says in Genesis 3.15 to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we think about another garden called Gethsemane where Jesus would fall to his knees and say, not my will be done, Father, but your will be done. And through going to the cross as a sinless Sacrifice is a propitiation for our sins. We see God do that very thing. Through the seed of Eve, Jesus Christ, the head of Satan, is forever crushed. As we even finish our little text here in chapter 11, what do we see? We see the last five verses of chapter 11 as we get ready to move into a new section of Genesis. We see the name Abraham mentioned four times, Sarah mentioned three times, Canaan mentioned twice, a son mentioned once. And it was going to be through Abraham that God would establish a covenant that all nations would be blessed. See, this is just pregnant with potential. Adam failed. Noah failed. People failed at Babel. But through Abraham, God promised to bless all nations. How did he bless all nations? Well, in and through the work of his son, Jesus, who fulfilled God's promises to Abraham as the ultimate blessing to all nations. In the beginning, God. These four words change everything. The question is, do you believe it to be true? I mean, it's easy to say yes because we're in church, but as you think about this at the deepest levels of your being, maybe as you ask questions like, God, who are you? God, do you care? God, can you help? Do you believe? Do you believe that in the beginning, God, have you elevated something or someone above this truth? Is there some small thing that is Lord in your life right now? What are you elevating on this day? In the beginning, God, before your good works, before your sterling reputation, before there was a presidential election, before there was career, before there was money, and if I was in Wisconsin, I would say before the Green Bay Packers, before there was any of it, there was God. Have you allowed a pain, a difficulty, a dark thing to rise above this truth and lord over your life today? In the beginning, before there was this grief, before there was this loss, in the beginning, before there was this poverty, before there was this broken heart, before there was this illness, before there was this betrayal, before there were these fires, before there was this pandemic, before there was this election, before there was any of it, there was God. Church, if we're going to study Genesis, if we're going to study Scripture, if we're going to view the world as God would have us view the world, we have to get this right. In the beginning, God. Let's pray. Father, so thankful that you have allowed us to gather in this place today. God, so thankful for this fundamental, foundational, transformative, eternal truth that, God, you have always been. You are creator, God. You are the alpha, the omega. You are infinite, eternally existent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God. You deserve all of our worship, all of our devotion, all of our attention. God, may we 
as individuals and may we collectively as your church learn to embrace and live in light of this profound truth in the beginning. God, we love you. We ask your blessing upon this sermon series over the next seven months. God, would you meet us in this place? Would you transform us, God? Would you give us obedience to walk as you would have us walk for your glory? We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.